listening to sermon audio from Red Tree Church. For more information about our church or to find more sermon audio, visit redtreechurch.com. Morning, church. Glad you guys are here. I'm stoked to continue our series. We are uh, on the downhill of this little fall series we're doing called Jesus's Family. Uh, We've spent, said we're going to spend this month talking about uh, what it means to be adopted into the family of Christ. What does it mean to be drawn into Christ's family and to live in community together? Uh, we, We talked about how Red Tree as a whole has this larger vision of, of this phrase. We talk about like the rhythms of our church, right? Jesus, family, and mission. Uh, Garrett, I got slides today, man. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, dude. <laughs> I always feel bad for the slide person when I put a bunch in there. But the, you guys did this to me. Brandon preached, and then you told me I had to do slides, and so I did. And now Garrett has to suffer. And that's on you guys. Uh, <laughs> So we have these rhythms of the church, right? We talk about Jesus' family mission. This is, this is kind of uh, the vision of our church, is this discipleship process that we're really passionate about, right? We talk about this a lot, that, that we say when, when a life becomes wrapped around the person and work of Jesus, right? The finished work on the cross, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, that when that becomes the dominant centric feature of a person, it will inherently lead that person into connection and communion with Christ's family. So if we grow in our passion for, our grounding in, our identity in, the person and work of Jesus, right, that will lead us to connect ourselves into deeper and deeper commitment with Christ's church, his bride, our, our, our family in Christ. And when, when someone begins or they continue to deepen their connection and their commitment to the family of Christ, that will invariably lead them to participating in Jesus's mission which is to go into the world and make disciples to seek and save the lost, to invite more people to the table of salvation, right? We say that, we say that G, or God is not slow as some people count time, but rather he is patient, desiring that all would come to repentance, right? And so there is a mission of God. And the tool he uses, the people he's sending on mission are his family, those who have been saved by the person and work of Jesus. So we talk about this as this process of discipleship, of growing in faith, growing in our connection to and living out of the gospel. This is what we care about as a church, right? And so we spent most of last year focusing in on what does it mean to really understand this idea of being centered on the person and work of Jesus. In fact, as part of that, We spent like a year and a half going through the gospel of Mark and seeing the person of Jesus and and focusing in on that in our weekend gathering, right? And then this year, we've spent a lot of time as elders, as pastors, praying over what does it look like to fully participate in Jesus's family? What does it look like to be covenanted together? And so for this series, we've been using this gospel equation that Ray Ortland talks about. It's this idea that when you have gospel plus safety plus time, you will have community. I'm going to have to pause. I need like the high sign for Garrett. 
<laughs> Something like that, right? We'll, we'll workshop it. We'll figure it out. When, when, you, when you have the truth of the gospel, right, that thing we just explained about the person and work of Jesus, and that is contextualized to an individual's life in a context of real safety where there isn't guilt or manipulation or shame, where a person is free to be as they are, and they see the gospel contextualized to that life where they are long enough, hearts will knit together, Right? and community will form, and people will be bonded together. And so we've been talking about what are different ways we can spend our time to focus in and to grab a hold of that kind of community. And so we talked about this idea of table time, right? Hospitality, like the, the way that we, the, like the places of hospitality in our life. I think one of the coolest ways to think about hospitality as a biblical concept is the safe harbors in the storms of life, right? Where, how are we using our spaces, be it our home, be it our living room, be it our car, how are we using the spaces God has given us to offer others safe harbors when life is hard and when life is painful. And so that kind of table time, hospitality time, time spent with brothers and sisters sharing a meal and sharing life is, a kind, is the kind of time that fosters what we're talking about. And then last week, we dug into the story of David and Jonathan and talked about this idea of growing in friendship and, and using this idea of time together that's just joyful, just joyful time, fun time, where you're just building camaraderie and building friendship. That is important space to help foster this gospel plus safety, right? And so today, we're going to be talking about a different concept, this idea of study time, a time where we learn together, learning time, right? And, and, and I think this is going to be really good for us. So today, we're going to be in Acts 18, if you guys want to go ahead and turn there. By the way, if you don't have a Bible with you today, uh, we'd love for you to snag one of our house Bibles. We have them on the end of each row. Um, if you don't own a Bible, you can feel free to snag that and just take it home. Or better yet, you could talk to one of the pastors and we will get you one nicer than our beat up aisle Bibles. But uh, we're going to be in Acts 18. Before we read our text, I want to give you guys the story of where we're at. So Acts as a book, tells kind of the history of the early church immediately following Jesus' ministry, his death, resurrection, and ascension. Acts picks up the story where the Gospels leave off, right? So Jesus lives and ministers to his people, and then he dies for our sins, and he is resurrected, and he ascends to heaven. And Acts picks up the story there. What does the church do in its first days existing as a concept? And so Acts kind of divides its time telling us about the growth and establishment of the mother church, the Jerusalem church, and then it splits off and spends the rest of its time talking about the early missionary movement of the church by focusing in on the Apostle Paul. And so as you go through Acts, that's kind of your two dividing lines. The establishment of the rooted mother church and the, the expanse of the church through missionary work. And it focuses in on that by essentially teaching us a lot about Peter as, as, as kind of the lead apostle in Jerusalem, and then shifting gears and telling us a lot about Paul 
as kind of the missionary apostle. So Paul uh, was a persecutor of the church. He actually deeply sought to destroy the Christian church and the Christian movement. And then he had a powerful supernatural experience of Jesus that changed his life. And he not only converted to Christianity, but he converted to Christianity and became a leader within the Christian church. And you fast forward some 10 or so years into Paul's conversion when he's become a Christian, and now he's a lay leader in the church at Antioch. And the church at Antioch is important historically because it's the first real rooted, strong church outside of Jerusalem. So the Jerusalem church grows and it gets its roots in deep really quick. You can read about that in Pentecost where the Holy Spirit shows up in power and thousands of people come to Christ at once. And that church roots, but then a persecution forces the Jerusalem church to disperse. And the church at Antioch becomes kind of the second deeply rooted strong church. So you have Paul, who's a spiritual leader in the church at Antioch. And one day as that church is praying and fasting, God speaks to them and says, hey, I want you to set aside Paul and Silas and send them to do my work. And so they pull Paul and Silas, two of the leaders in the church, kind of, or not Paul and Silas, Paul and Barnabas. Silas is later, sorry. They pull Paul and Barnabas out of their leadership position and they send them on missionary work. And Paul essentially spends the rest of his life traveling, preaching the gospel, and starting new churches. And, and the Acts tells us a big chunk of that. Acts tells us three missionary journeys that Paul goes on. If you have you know, one of these fancier Bibles, there is almost certainly a map in the back with a bunch of little dotted lines that'll tell you about Paul's three missionary journeys as outlined in Acts. So Acts 18 picks us up essentially at the end of his second missionary journey and before the beginning of his third missionary journey. We're in that transition period when Paul's beginning to, to start his last recorded missionary journey which that's a loaded statement that we could talk about later if you want to. But uh, so, so here's where we are. Paul has traveled all over the established Roman world. He's planted churches all over the place. And when he gets to a city called Corinth, he meets this couple, this couple Priscilla and Aquila. And they're really important in the early church. You might have heard their names before. They don't get a lot of uh, FaceTime in the scriptures themselves, but church history gives us a lot about this couple and their importance in the early church. So they were Jewish by birth from Rome who had been forced to leave Rome because of a persecution. Uh, the Jews had been cast out of the city of Rome and they ended up settling in the city of Corinth where they connect with Paul and they become Christians and they grow in their faith. And Paul and Priscilla and Aquila kind of link into this like arm in arm, kingdom centric friendship that lasts the rest of their life. Aquila and Priscilla are business owners. They make tents and work with leather. There's a season where Paul actually lives with them for like a year and a half, working a trade with them as they seek to build up local churches in Ephesus. But they meet in Corinth, and as Paul leaves to go kind of prep things to start his third journey, they actually come with him. They, they leave their setup, and they come with Paul, and they end up planting in the city of Ephesus for a season. 
And there's a lot more going on here. You can read Acts on your own. But they plant in this city for a season, and Paul leaves to go do other stuff, and Aquila and Priscilla stay there, serving and ministering to the church. And church history actually tells us that they were wealthy enough that they actually hosted some of the house church groups. The church at this point didn't have buildings or meeting spaces. They met in homes and secret places, and Aquila and Priscilla hosted the church in Ephesus for a long time. So we pick up our text. Uh, we pick up our text starting in Acts 18. We're going to start in verse 24. It's important to know, though, that the, the friendship that exists between this couple and Paul lasts the rest of their lives. This couple actually will eventually return to Rome uh, during a time when Paul is living there and then when Paul is in prison there. And in fact, a church history tells us they were martyred under the same uh, Nero, persecution by Nero that ended up seeing Paul and Peter martyred. Uh, they, were, they stayed and remained in Rome, according to church tradition, ministering and helping Christians get out of the city when it had been locked down uh, to their own detriment. Um, they kind of gave of themselves to protect the church, according to, 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 to our traditions. But we're starting in verse 24 of chapter 18, and it says this, Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, They took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And this is the word of the Lord. Jesus, we pray this morning that you would do the work of illuminating your text to us. Holy Spirit, we need you to be our discipler, to be our pastor, to to draw your truth out of your word, to bring us reminders of things we have forgotten and things we have ignored, and to teach us new things and to convict us of our sin. Holy Spirit, do that ministry today for us. And let us leave this space having met with you in your word today. Amen. So the story here is pretty simple, right? You've got the church at Ephesus. By the way, again, another one of these root churches uh, that that dug its roots in deep and raised up a lot of leaders and, and helped kind of ground the early church in the midst of a lot of persecution. And you've got Priscilla and Aquila, this couple living there, serving the church, building them up for a long time, and this dude named Apollos shows up. Now, Apollos is from Alexandria, so he is Egyptian, but he's a Jewish dude by birth. 
So he shows up, and the dude is educated and intelligent and a good speaker, and he gets to town, and he makes his way into the synagogue and starts preaching about Jesus as Messiah. And so initially, the Christian church there is like, heck yes, this is exactly what we need. More educated, well-spoken, passionate people. This is great. But as he teaches, it becomes really evident that even though he's really smart and really passionate, he's missing part of the story. It says he only knew the baptism of John, meaning he's teaching out of the tradition of John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist, the precursor of Jesus, came and preached about the coming Messiah. Behold, one is coming who I am not worthy to untie the laces of his sandals. And the teaching of John the Baptist really bluntly pointed to Christ as the Messiah, but it ended there. John the Baptist's teaching was, the Messiah is coming. His name is Jesus. Repent and be baptized. The end. And they, the, the followers of John could point back to the scriptures and show how Jesus fulfilled the prophecies of the Messiah. But the teaching stopped there. It stopped short. All true, all biblically accurate. But if we're honest, it's missing the actual meat of the gospel. There's no death and resurrection and ascension and forgiveness of sins through the blood of Christ. There's just, he's the Messiah, repent of your sins and get ready because God's about to do something new. Well, the church was saying, the Christian church was saying, yeah, he already did it. He died and resurrected and ascended. But there was still these remnants of the followers of John who had half the story, but not the whole story. So Apollo shows up on the scene and he preaches boldly truth about Jesus as the Messiah, and yet it falls short of the saving gospel message, right? It's missing the crux of the message. And so when Priscilla and Aquila hear this, they they, they can't let it sit there. They can't let it stay there. And so I'm going to reread this sentence because I think it's so good. This is in verse 26. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. I love that. So this couple who's been faithfully serving this church hears this guy's teaching, sees his gifting, his potential, but he's not quite there. So they pull him aside. And let's be honest They just study the truth of the gospel with him, right? They tell him the rest of the story. They tell him what Jesus the Messiah actually did. If you were with us when we went through the book of Mark, we talked over and over about how Jesus broke all the established cultural expectations of what the Messiah would actually do. Even though Jesus firmly planted himself in the shoes and identity of Messiah, the things he chose to do with that were not what the Jewish people were expecting. It was so much greater, so much bigger. And so for someone to come along in a synagogue and say, hey, the Messiah is here, he showed up, people will be like, cool, let's talk about that. Uh, Why is Rome still in power? But the church comes along and says it has nothing to do with that. It's actually so much better than just a political change of power. It's actually about life and freedom and repentance and eternity united with God. And so Priscilla and Aquila pull Apollo's side and they tell him the rest of the story. 
And he gets it. And he's like, man, this is awesome. <laughs> this is way better. This is it. This is the story. And, and it clicks. And it clicks so well that when he gets the urge to leave and go preach in different cities and different communities, the church at Ephesus gets excited about this. And they send him purposefully, and they send him with greetings, and they tell the other churches to trust him and greet him and listen to him. And guys, Apollos ends up becoming one of the most important formative figures in the first century church. Go back and read the letter of 1 Corinthians. Paul had deep respect for Apollos, right? Apollos' ministry, his preaching and teaching to the Corinthian church, partnered with Paul's ministry, and God used both of them to grow that church up into what it was. Apollos was so important and so influential and used his ministry, his teaching, his skills, his gifting, his education to bless the church for the rest of his life. But it comes back to a scene in a synagogue where a young buck, educated guy, is preaching something really passionately, and he only has half the story. <laughs> and an older, wiser, more spiritually mature couple pulls him aside in love and teaches him the way of God more accurately. Man, what a gift to the church that came from Priscilla and Aquila's obedience to teach the word more accurately. They had no way of knowing what they were doing, right? I mean, sure, they saw this guy and they heard that he was an eloquent public speaker and all those things, but they had no concept that their faithful obedience to humbly love and serve this guy would have influence on the church literally forever as God spoke through and worked through Apollos to help establish the church in Corinth, which was the church that was going to provide two of the books of our canon. Right? Think about all of the gospel and all of Christ that we learn from First and Second Corinthians. Letters written to a church that God worked through Paul and Apollos to plant and establish. That's crazy. It's crazy how God works through stuff like that. So here's what I want to tell you guys from this. This whole piece starts with a couple taking him aside in love and teaching him the scripture. It's as simple as that. I know that like what I'm about to say is like the obvious low-hanging fruit of Christianity, but like we need to talk about it. Studying God's word together as brothers and sisters bears fruit for the kingdom. It just does. It just does. When, when you get together with brothers and sisters in Christ and you crack open this word and you humbly approach the Holy Spirit to be your discipler and to teach you both and to illuminate the text, he shows up in power. And he speaks through his revelation and he sharpens and matures his children to grow in holiness and maturity so that the kingdom might move forward. Guys, it's just real. 
It's just what it is. Like, I don't feel like there can be a more churchy Sunday school kind of thing for a pastor to say than, you should all be reading your Bible. But you should. Like, really, you should. And you shouldn't just be reading it. You should be studying it. And by the way, you shouldn't just be studying it. You should be studying it with brothers and sisters. And listen, listen, I'm going to toe this line very carefully. (laughs) What I'm talking about right now is not the same thing as your Bible study class. There's nothing wrong with CBS or BSF or, I don't know, there's probably five other letter combinations that are some kind of awesome Bible study ministry. There's nothing wrong with those. There's nothing wrong with a Sunday school class you were in for 25 years. Those things are amazing, but we must be really careful when we posture ourselves to learn about the Bible from an expert's teaching over and over and over and over, and then check the box to say, we have studied scripture. Guys, there's something different between sitting underneath the wisdom of an expert so that you can receive their wisdom and grow an understanding of scripture than coming together as brothers and sisters and mutually studying the word under your teacher, the Holy Spirit. And again, like, please hear me. I'm not telling you you should go quit BSF. It's great. If you have time and margin for that sort of thing in your life, that's amazing. You will learn so much, and that's good. But the goal of studying Scripture is not learning more about the Bible. You need to hear that. You're like, I'm pretty sure it is. (laughs) The goal of studying Scripture is growth and holiness and maturity. It's growing more in holiness and more in spiritual maturity. And yes, that involves Bible knowledge. Guys, listen. The Bible's hard to understand. I get it. I'm working on a master's degree in understanding the Bible, and I'm really bad at it. I get it. I get that it's intimidating that you sit down and you read Chronicles, or you read Jeremiah, or you jump into Revelation, and you go, I have no clue what this is talking about. You want me to sit with some random other believer at a coffee shop and be like, hey, let's dig into this. So uh, what do you think about the seven-headed beast? I don't know. What am I supposed to tell them? When I sit in a class and they give me a little textbook and there's commentaries built into it, they tell me all that stuff and then I know it. When I come and I sit in a sermon, someone else with a master's degree can tell me all about the historical context and the Greek language and how this word is this in English, but really it means this. And that changes the whole meaning of the text. But I don't know that. So if I read the text on my own, I'm not going to know the Greek word really means that and I'm going to totally miss it. Right? And listen, there's truth in that. There is. Academic study of the scripture is really valuable. And sitting under the wisdom and learning of other people is really valuable. But you know what? I almost guarantee that Apollos had way more education than Aquila and Priscilla. All but guarantee it. Contextually, it's all but unavoidable in our text. The dude was a traveling public speaker who had been educated They were tent makers. 
He had sat under lots of theologians and professors and teachers and knew a lot of stuff. And yet, he learned from them. He learned the truth of the gospel from the blue-collar tradesmen. Guys, you don't need a seminary degree to be discipled by the Holy Spirit. Here's the thing. We all actually believe that the Bible is God's word, right? We believe it's God's revelation, that he chose to make himself known through the written word of the text. We, we all believe that the Holy Spirit, right, worked and spoke those words through those people and then supernaturally intervened to preserve them and keep them for thousands of years. Like that's the teaching of the Christian church. <coughs> Guys, if the Holy Spirit can do that, he doesn't need me to teach you his gospel through his word. He doesn't. And you're like, sweet, that'll make our next budget meeting way easier. <laughs> but guys, I'm serious. It's valuable to sit under skilled and learned teachers. And if you can, you should make that a part of your life. You should. But to, to trick yourself into thinking... That by doing that, by learning, growing in knowledge and factual understanding of the history and context of the Bible, is growth in studying the Word is a deception. It is. Guys, we are in a very real danger of feasting upon the Word and knowledge of the Word so much that we become entirely spiritually obese and can no longer act on it. That's a weird analogy, but like, get like what's eating Gilbert Grape in your head, right? Like, there's a reality that you can eat so much that you can no longer get up and move. That nutrition stops being nutrition, and it starts getting in the way. If we bend our lives around growing in Bible knowledge and growing in facts, and we fill up every little bit of our free time with another class and another study, and we can tell you a ton of different stuff about Greek and history and context and genre, but we're not growing in holiness and maturity. Beloved, you have been deceived. You have. If, if you spend hours upon hours studying the Word and you can exegete with the best of them, but it never leaves you, you're doing something wrong. And that's harsh, and I'm sorry, but I'm not, because it's true. It's true. God spoke that truth and preserved that truth that we might be changed people, that we might grow in holiness and maturity. You know, in our Protestant tradition, we love all day long to talk about how salvation is by faith apart from works, right? And that's true, and we stand on that. But go back and read the epistles in the New Testament and count how many times Paul tells believers they need to engage in holy, good works. It's a lot. It's one of the main themes of Paul's teaching is the necessity of participation in the kingdom. That Christianity is not a spectator sport. Like we said last year, right? There's no bench to sit on. We are called to participate 
in the work of the kingdom. And if you sit back and you say, A, I don't know enough, I can't do it, I'll mess someone else up. Or you say, B, I don't have time to do it because I'm filling all my time being discipled and learning from other people. Either side of that is a ditch, and you're missing it. Beloved, we are all called to make disciples. All of us. If you believe the Great Commission is for the church, then it's for you. Go therefore and make disciples, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. What's everything Jesus commanded you? I'm not going to lie. I don't have that just on immediate recall. (laughs) You're like, we pay you to have that on immediate recall. I don't have that on immediate recall. I would need to sit down and do some reading and studying. (laughs) If we're going to be obedient to Christ, if we're going to be obedient to the Great Commission, right, the thing that we're all called into, then we're going to have to crack open the Word together. Even when we feel totally and completely unprepared and unable to do that. Even when we're like, I I literally don't know what I'll tell them. If this person comes up to me and they're like, hey, let's let's study Jesus' parables. I'm going to read the parables and be like, I have no clue. I don't know. I don't know what the, the pearl is or the field. Like, it was cool. Can we call Pastor Craig and ask him? That'll be our time together. No, it won't. It won't. Guys, the Holy Spirit is your discipler. And here's the thing. I guarantee you, guarantee you, if you sit down with brothers and sisters to sit under the Word and sit under the teaching of the Holy Spirit, and allow the scripture to teach you in the moment, I guarantee you, you will miss all sorts of stuff that I would bring up if I preached that same text. You'll miss the nuance of Greek and Hebrew grammar. You'll miss the nuance of historical context. You'll you'll miss the connection to the author's style and the genre. You just will. And you know what? God will still speak to you. And he'll still grow you in holiness and maturity. And five years later, you'll hear a sermon on that text and you'll go, that is not what I thought that meant. And then you'll think back about that meeting with that person and you'll be like, I really messed them up. But God used it. God used it to grow you in maturity and holiness. And that's not to say that we can just do whatever we want with the Bible. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is that if we actually believe God is who he says he is and the Holy Spirit did the ministry he said he did to create and preserve this for us, then we should probably engage it, right? We should probably trust his power and ability to actually move through it to grow us and grow the church. Beloved, some of you need to stop feasting And you need to get up and you need to invite other people to the table. Some of you need to do that. And some of you need to get over your fear that you will permanently screw up someone's faith by missing a Greek grammar piece in a text in John. Guys, you're just not that spiritually authoritative. I'm sorry. If God is calling that person from death to life, he can call them from death to life even if you miss the Greek grammar. Right? 
Beloved, we got to get in the Word together. Let me uh, read two texts for you. I'm going to put these references up on the screen. These are famous texts, but I want you to, I want you to think about them. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 11 and 13 says, Let us therefore strive to enter the rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. It's the author's talking about uh, Israel's time in the wilderness and making a comparison between their disobedience and their struggle in the desert and the church's experience of Christ and the Spirit today. Verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Then no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Beloved, the Holy Spirit is fully prepared to disciple you through his word. You are naked and exposed in front of him. There is nothing you can do or hide. And when you sit down in humble expectation in his word, he will meet you. He will. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17 says this. This is Paul uh, near the end of his life writing an encouragement to a young pastor. And he says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The scripture is sufficient to equip you for the work of the kingdom. It is. It's sufficient. It's able to teach and reprove and correct and build you up in righteousness. Beloved, don't miss out on this. How many of us, if we're honest, allow ourselves to be fed snippets of Scripture through programs we have scheduled into our life? And that's our engagement with the Word. I go to church on Sunday. I have GC on Tuesday night. There's this Bible study I'm a part of. I listen to bot radio, so, you know, I'm good. And there's this really cool podcast of another church and pastor I like. I've got like 15 touch points where I'm hearing scripture each week. I'm good. Beloved, there is no substitute for you and the Spirit getting together in the Word. There isn't. And when you invite your family in Christ into that, When you come together humbly and cluelessly engaging his word, you will be blown away by how he meets you in that. You will. I'm telling you guys, like, I know that I'm just like saying this over and over, but there's, there's not like anything else to this. Like if you come with a humble and expectant heart with a brother or sister in Christ and you dig through the word together, asking the spirit to interpret and illuminate and convict and do all the ministry Jesus said he would do in John 13, 14, and 15, then you will experience it. 
It's God's word revealed to you. And beloved, you have no concept of how privileged you are to have access to this. No concept of it. Because we are, we are so privileged as the modern Western church to have such easy and constant access to God's revelation. Our brothers and sisters throughout the world and throughout church history, I can't imagine what they would do to have access to God's revelation like we do. You know the church existed for a thousand years before there was a printing press? Right? Where the majority of Christians lived their entire life never seeing an entire compiled Bible once. And the only scriptures they knew were the scraps or books or fragments that their church had collected together or saved up the money to pay someone to copy. And that if you knew it, it's probably because you memorized it. Guys, that's the majority of our brothers and sisters throughout church history and throughout the world. That's not the exception. We are the exception. With 15 Bibles on our, on our bookcase at home, I've got, listen, I've got my student study Bible from when I was in middle school. And then when I went to college, a guy gave me a men's study Bible, which has different notes than the student study Bible. But then when I graduated college, I knew I needed one that was a little classier. So I just went ahead and bought the ESV study Bible. But then when I had that a couple of years, I thought, you know, I would look classier if this was like the cowskin one instead of just the hardback one. So I went and bought another ESV study Bible. But then I heard some trash about the ESV, so I went back to the NASB. So I went back and bought three versions of the NASB, one thin line, one pocket size, and one study one. Right? And then you're like, no, I just look it up on an app. Leave me alone. <laughs> yeah. Every translation available on your phone all the time. And guys, I'm not saying this to crap on you. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. I'm not trying to beat you up. But I want you to actually reflect on this. You've been given an insane gift. An insane gift. God called you into his family at a time and a place when you have more ready and constant access to his revelation to you than basically any of your other brothers and sisters throughout the world and throughout history. What a privilege. Why would we miss that? Why would we check out of that? Why would we not fight for that engagement? Guys, I'm telling you, there are people in this room that you need to be studying Scripture with. They need to hear your voice of working through the Scriptures, and you need to hear theirs. Guys, we need each other in this. So here's what I'm going to do to end this out. I want to talk to us about, I want, I want to remove your excuse and my excuse. I want to give us an incredibly simple way to engage in studying scripture. And you can write this down if you're a bullet point person. If you're not a bullet point person, you still don't have an excuse because I printed it out on a bookmark and I'm going to give it to you before you leave. <laughs> I want you to write this down though. Most of you, if you've been in church a long time, you've heard some of this before, but I want you to Stop and go through this with me because I think it's important. I'm going to give you a really simplified version of inductive Bible study, which is a way for you, regardless of your level of education, to invite the Holy Spirit into interpreting and discerning the text for you 
and a friend. So you sit down with the text. You go, hey, Brad, I'd love it if me and you could sit down and work our way through Colossians 1, and we're going to be preaching through it, and I don't get it. Brad's like, dang it, now I have to do that with him. <laughs> it's going to be awkward. So you sit down, and you have your text, and you pray together. And you, that's point one, you pray. And you ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate the text to you. And then after you pray, it can be a simple prayer. It can be literally nine seconds. Holy Spirit, we don't know what we're doing. Will you please illuminate the text to us? Amen. And then you read the text together. And I, I know it's, you're like, this is the most obvious thing ever, but stick with me in this. I would encourage you to have more than one person read it out loud. If there's two of you, each of you read it out loud so that you can read it once and you can listen to it once. And as you listen to it, when you're not reading it and concentrating on pronouncing like Mephibosheth's name right, look for keywords and phrases. Underline them in your Bible or write them in a journal next to you. Grab some specific things in that that just stick in your brain. Not because you know what they mean, not because you heard a sermon on it 15 years ago, but just because in that moment, that word, that phrase sticks with you. Write those things down. Then examine the text together. And I, this, by the way, is the place where you can go a mile deep with this if you want to. You can Google inductive Bible study and you can find a process where under, under what I've just called examine, you find like 45 bullet points of things you should do and look for and write down. And you can do that if you want to. But I want to give you the really, really, really simple version of this. Both of you, or however many of you there are, look at the keywords and phrases you wrote down. Pick a couple of those and find every scripture you can that references that same word or phrase. Google it. Like, man, in this passage, I don't know, there's just something about that, that like he used that word abide and it just like that stuck with me. Okay, Google scriptures that use the word abide. <laughs> You'll find a topical index online. Start reading those scriptures, writing out those cross-references together. Help each other compile a list of cross-references. And the reason is this. The Bible is God's word, and so it's, a, it's its own best interpreter. If you don't have access to an immediate, awesome, academically trained commentary or a theologian to dig into, just look what the scripture says about it. Find every other passage you can, you know, keeping track of your time, that engages that same thought or concept and then discuss it and use that together to collectively build your own commentary on the text. And you're like, but we're going to be cherry-picking texts, and we won't have time to put them all in context. You're right, you won't. And so you'll probably mess some of them up. But you make a big enough list, and you pray over it, and you're thoughtful, and you're reasonable, you will end up with a pretty good commentary on the text you read together. So then, you need to apply it. And this might require prayer again, but start asking God. Remember, this is not about spiritual obesity. This is not like, man, you know, it was really cool to realize that when Paul used the word abide, he was actually linking into some Jewish language that was used throughout the wisdom literature. That's interesting, but that's not the point of what you're doing. So ask God and say, why, why did I need to think about that today? And pick at each other and ask that question. Why did we need to talk about that? Why did you need to hear that today? And I'm going to encourage you when you're doing this with someone, whatever their first answer is to you, I guarantee isn't specific enough. So when they go, man, you know, I've actually been really struggling with abiding in Christ, so I need to hear that. Cool. How have you been struggling to abide with Christ? 
What does that mean for you? Dig in. Get awkwardly specific with someone. And now you're like, okay, I'm not doing this. But do it. Take that two layers deeper than someone's willing to say on the first piece. Come up with something that you actually need to engage to grow in holiness that week. You know, here's the real thing. When I say I'm having struggle abiding in Christ, what I mean is I'm actually really struggling at my work. And I have these broken relationships with a couple coworkers. And every time they like pick the right thing at me and push my buttons, like I just respond in my flesh and in anger. And then later I'll go home and I'll talk to my wife about it. And she'll be like, how did you not like, why weren't you like thinking of loving them in Christ? I'm like, well, because I'm not actually connected to Christ at work. At work, I'm really just thinking about like getting my job done. So for me, I actually need to think about what it looks like to be seeking Christ during my work day so that I can really be abiding in him when I respond to those guys. That's an application. That's something specific you can do. And then here's the best part. Follow up with them on it. Before you meet again, give them a call, shoot them a text, and say, hey, I've been praying about your interaction with your coworkers. How's that going? See what you do with it. That's it. It's a pretty simple process, right? I guarantee you can do that. If you have access to Google and you have access to a Bible, you can make it through that process. It might be hard. You might stumble through it. It might take you doing it a few times before you catch a pace. But I promise you, you can do that. You can. And beloved, it is worth it. God has chosen to reveal himself to us through his word. Why would we miss that? Why would we skip out on getting to know God? I'm going to give you one image, and then I'm going to talk about what we're going to do next, and we'll continue on in our time. I've used this example before, so I'm sorry if you've already heard it, but a lot of you guys know I used to have a St. Bernard, this big, just floppy, drooly, smelly dog named Buford, which is the kind of name you have to give a St. Bernard. You can't name a St. Bernard like James. It's got to be something really just good, Buford or Klaus, something like that. So we had Buford, and he was this great dog, best dog I ever had. Here's the thing about Buford. He was a great dog, but he was too stupid to understand me. Not, I mean, he was a smart dog, but a smart dog is still a stupid creature, right? And so the reality is, when Buford came to live in my house, he didn't know anything about me, and he did not have the physical ability to really learn about me just through observation. He could watch me all day long, and he might learn things about me, but he lacked the capacity to know me and understand me the way another human can, right? So if I wanted Buford to know my heart and my intentions for him, I had to actively do the work of revealing myself to him. I had to scratch his belly and give him treats when he did good things. And I had to show him that I fed him food every night. And I had to give him a comfy place to sleep and make sure it was clean. And I had to build trust with him so that he knew when I was grooming him, it wasn't torture, but it was actually an act of love to free him of all his knots in his hair, right? I had to reveal myself to him. And he grew in a limited understanding of me. But the only way he grew in that was by engaging the revelation that I gave him. Because he lacked the capacity to know me apart from revelation. Beloved, your God loves you so dearly that he has revealed himself 
fully and completely in the person and work of Christ and in his word preserved and given to you. If you want to grow in holiness, if you want to grow in the gospel, if you want to grow in your faith, you can't do it by just hanging out. You can't do it by just observing. You have to engage his revelation. So in just a minute, I'm going to pray for us and I'm going to give some space for us to pray. And we're going to have some prayer counselors and we're going to do our normal response time. I'm going to give space for you guys to pray and contemplate what God's telling you. We're going to have prayer counselors around the room and we're going to sing a song and then we're going to come up and take communion. But when you come up and take communion, you're going to see a big stack of Bibles sitting around the communion area. And I borrowed these from a lot of saints in our church over the last couple weeks so that you guys could see them. I specifically asked people, I said, hey, if you had a Bible that was just really key for you in a season of faith when you first became a Christian or when you locked into some community or discipleship, can I borrow it? And so a lot of people let me borrow those. This is my Bible from high school, my senior year of high school, when I really uh, connected to my faith for the first time. Um, It is missing its cover. I think I left it in another country. Uh, But this is a Bible that met me, that God used to speak to me at a time in my life when I was really hungry to get to know him. And it is falling apart, and it's really precious to me. And I know that's a silly thing, but I wanted you guys to see these. As we come up and take communion and we reflect on the body broken and the blood poured out, I want us to think about what it means to actually give a piece of our life to engage God's revelation, to know him as he has revealed himself. Guys, it bears fruit. It does. When you get together with brothers and sisters in Christ and you wear out your Bibles together, it bears fruit. It advances the kingdom. It draws you and calls you to repentance and holiness and maturity and kingdom work is done. So, let's give some space to pray. I would would really invite you guys um, to, to just find the space you need to find in this room. If you can sit in your chair and do that, that's fine. If you want to um, get on your knees somewhere, that's fine. If you want another human being to pray over you, we've got a couple of prayer counselors today, uh, Drew and Julie and Dan, if you guys could stand up so people can see you. Uh, they'll be around the room. Um, if you just need someone to pray out loud with you, come grab one of them or grab one of the pastors. But here's what I'd like for us to do. Chris is going to come up and just kind of pick through a song. I just, I just want to give some space for us to be honest with God about our love for his word. Guys, there's no getting around the fact that we've been given an insane privilege of having deep access to the person of God as he's chosen to reveal himself. I want to encourage you guys to be really honest with Jesus about how you engage that privilege. Because the reality is, if we're honest, we almost certainly take it for granted in a lot of ways. I want you to talk to him about that. Talk to him about how you engage his word and what your disciplines look like. And and I want to encourage you guys to ask God to grow your passion for his revelation. So let's pray over that for a few minutes, and then I'll, I'll bring us back together and we'll continue our response.
Thank you for listening to this sermon from Red Tree Church. Visit redtreechurch.com for more information.